Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. The following is audio from a 2016 Texas Public Policy Foundation event with Jess Fields and Thomas Lindsay, a panel discussion entitled How a Convention of States Works, featuring Rita Peters, Senior Vice President for Legislative Affairs at Convention of States. I'm Jess Fields. I'm the Article 5 Project Coordinator here at TPPF. Uh, used to do local government work here. Uh, and I've met several of y'all at SPN uh, and other uh, conferences in the past. Um, and uh, uh, appreciate, I see Representative Miller here. Thank you for being here, Representative. And, uh, uh, we had several legislators here. Now, if you're from an SPN think tank, would you just raise your hand briefly? This is for you guys. This entire thing is for you guys. Yeah, we had a lot of representatives last night. I think we had like, what, 20, 22, 20, something like that, and several senators. You know, we had uh, Governor Abbott, and we had Lieutenant Governor Patrick uh, this morning. Um, we're going to have more luminaries. But really, this whole conference is for you guys. Now, why would we do that? It's because you guys are really important. In your states, you wield a great deal of influence, prestige, gravitas, if I can use that term, but you have the intellectual force behind a lot of the policy ideas that are picking up steam in your states, especially with conservatives. And so this is an idea that needs force behind it among conservatives. We need as many people on the boat as possible, and the boat can be as big as we want it to be. Convention of States Project has, in particular, done a fantastic job, and we're going to hear from Rita Dunaway in a moment, of bringing this issue to the fore in the last couple of years. And we're not looking in any way to supplant their efforts. What we're trying to do is make sure that our allies in the states, organizations like yours, that have been around for years working in the trenches, join with us on this important effort. Join with Governor Abbott, join with Convention of States Project, with the foundation and uh, getting behind this important effort. Now, I want to just give you a couple of quick numbers here, real fast. Simple numbers. I just looked these up, just took a second. 81,910. 81,910. That is a record number. 2015 Federal Register, the number of pages at the end of 2015, 81,910, 3,408. That's how many new final rules and regulations were in the Federal Register, in all those pages. 548, I think a conservative estimate, of the number of those rules and regulations that actually have a significant economic effect on small businesses. Another number you're probably more familiar with, 19,265,118,453,967. Now that was the national debt when I checked it right before breakfast. Unfortunately, since that time, um, it has changed. Um, it's gone up now to 19,265,184,000,000. So Aggie math, you know, being what it is, I think that's another $66 million or something that we've added since we started breakfast. So congratulations uh, to the next generation for picking that up. 
269. Now we're going to get into some numbers that are more relevant to this. 269. That's the number of House reps in Congress, 218, and 51 senators that we need to change this country back to its constitutional foundations if we're going to do it by electing really good people. Five, as Governor Abbott pointed out last night, I think earlier, Michael Ferris and Mark Meckler pointed out, that's how many Supreme Court justices it takes to change the Constitution. Or maybe now four, we'll see. But of course, Governor Abbott said five. I would slightly disagree with Governor Abbott that it's just five. I would say it just takes one. Just look at the guy in the White House right now. Just look at what's happening every single day. As the government, as the executive branch, issues all these rules and regulations, we have to wonder if we haven't lost control of our country, and we have. Of course, the states created the federal government, and so the states can take it back. And as I've talked to folks that I know personally, just good friends of mine back in old College Station, Texas, telling them what I'm doing <coughs> now, getting involved with Article 5, some of them said, well, why are you doing that? That's unconstitutional. What are you talking about? It's like, well, but look in the Constitution. Article 5 is in the Constitution, and it's there for a reason. The founders knew we might mess it up, and the founders gave us a way back. They gave us an escape hatch, and that's what Article 5 is. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about what this would look like. We're going to answer some basic questions, and we have two really smart people here <laughs> on stage. Uh, Rita Dunaway with the Convention of States Project and my colleague Tom Lindsay at the Foundation. And um, Rita, I think I'm just going to start with you if sure. you want to issue some opening remarks. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, everyone, for being here. I assume if you're in this room, it's because you're just really interested in all the minute details and mechanics of the Article 5 process. So that's great. I thought I would just start by giving a little bit of background. When I meet people and tell them what I do, usually one of the first questions is, well, how did you end up there? How did you end up doing that? When I went to law school, one of the reasons I went to law school is because <coughs> I, what I was what I would call idealistic. Some people would have called me naive. Um, I wanted to make some difference in the country. I wanted to do something, even something small maybe, to make America better and to help restore America to its founding principles. So shortly after I graduated from law school, I went to work for the Rutherford Institute, John Whitehead, some of you maybe know of him, but it's a national nonprofit civil liberties organization. So my job with Rutherford was to work with other attorneys across the country in suing the government whenever it violated someone's civil liberties. So I thought, you know, that was great. I, I am doing something to make a difference, and I learned a lot. It was a great job. But toward the end of my time at Rutherford, what I started to realize was, looking at the bigger picture, I wasn't doing anything proactive or constructive to really fix 
the situation. You know, it's sort of like playing a game of whack-a-mole. When you try to beat down the government over here, at the same time it's popping up in 10 other places doing something it shouldn't be doing. And so what I started to see was that so many of the big problems in our country were structural problems that needed a structural <clears throat> systemic solution. So when I learned about the Convention of States project a few years ago, I just found it completely logically compelling. This is the solution. This is the structural systemic solution to government overreach in so many different areas. This is what needs to be done. And so I came on board first as a volunteer in Virginia as the legislative liaison and then got to know Mike Ferris a little bit in Virginia and came on board the national staff. But really what I want to say before we get started and get into the details is that in setting the groundwork for all the discussion we're going to have today, it's important for you to know that the reason we can answer the questions we're going to answer today is because of history. We know all the important things about the way an Article V convention works because of history. You know, to hear some people talk, you would think that the Founding Fathers in Philadelphia just decided, well, we need some way for the states to be able to propose amendments. So, you know, we're not sure what to do. We'll put this language in here about, you know, convention, something like that, and good luck to them. They'll figure it out down the road when they need to do it. Well, does that sound like the Founding Fathers that we know and love? Of course not. That's not what they did at all. They inserted the convention for proposing amendments because that was how the states did business. That was how the colonies had done business in their time, was through the interstate convention procedure. It was a very well-known, understood process, and the basic important features of it were always the same. It was not a great mystery. And so what I want to point out is that when we hear people, and a lot of times we hear good conservative people throw out these you know, questions. I, you know, I've seen a list of 20 questions put out by one organization about the convention process. And they throw the questions out as if they are unanswerable, as if they're total mysteries. And so what we need to realize when we see that, when people do that, is that they're saying either one of two things. They're either saying that they don't know that there's a history of interstate conventions, which none of you will be able to say after you leave here today. Or on the other hand, and this is the really alarming proposition, they're saying that history is an insufficient guide to us in understanding constitutional meaning. And that is really alarming and disturbing to me. And it should be to everyone in this room, too. Because isn't it, hasn't it always been a fundamental tenet 
of conservatism that we interpret the Constitution according to what the words meant when they were written. They do have a meaning. They have a definite meaning, and it's a meaning that we can know and understand from history. And it is that way with Article 5, just as with everything else. So we should be disturbed and alarmed when we hear other conservatives act as if we can't know the meaning because it really represents a sort of deeper hypocrisy. Do we really believe that history is a sufficient and capable guide to the meaning? So I look forward to getting into more of the details, and I know we want to hear from Tom, too. Great. Yeah, Tom. Good. Well, thank you, and, and welcome, everyone. It's wonderful to have you here, and I look forward to the discussion this morning and this afternoon. I just want to make a couple points by way of introduction, but I want to follow up on Rita's excellent point here about uh, the uh, lack of uh, historical knowledge that characterizes too much of this debate. And, and listening to Rita, you have to appreciate the irony because up until Rob Nadelson has done wonderful research on, on Article 5, and he shows that up until, up for about the first 150 years of the Republic, everybody understood what the Article 5 convention process was. But then in the early 60s, uh, in reaction against the uh, Warren Court's legislative redistricting uh, opinions, the left started a campaign against the Article 5 convention movement because in the 60s there were, there were, there were three different bills that each of which got, in different numbers, 30 states to uh, push back against the Warren Court. And this led to a couple of, of law review articles by then Yale law professor Charles Black. And uh, um, um, Rob Nadelson does a great job of showing that Black completely neglects the history behind the Article V convention movement. His arguments are filled with invective, but unfortunately it had a big effect so that uh, 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 Bobby Kennedy uh, uh, started to pick up his points and then, of course, which meant that Sorensen, uh, Ted Sorensen did, and then uh, uh, Richard Rovere, who wrote a piece in the New Yorker in which he said an Article V convention could, quote, reinstate segregation and even slavery, unquote. Well, as I say, Nadelson does a nice job, and I'll be trying to recite some of the points that he makes and that Rita addressed. The two points I just want to make right now are this. First, we've heard about George Mason's role, and, and, and rightly so. Um, the convention was winding down, and at that time, the only method for proposing amendments was to be coming from Congress. But it was George Mason who said, wait a second, we know that the federal government, uh, comprised by human beings, will seek uh, uh, more power than is legitimate. You can't count on the Congress to propose amendments to restrict its own power. Therefore, it must come from the states. And that's how we got the second method. So the first method, Congress can propose. Second method, two-thirds of the states can propose. And that method was designed explicitly to bypass the Congress. Now, and this was recognized by no less a defender of big government in his day, although he, I'm sure he's rolling over in his grave to see what's done in the name of big government today. But that view was understood by Alexander Hamilton, who said in Federalist 85, here, and I quote, 
The national rulers, whenever nine states concur, because that was two-thirds, I'm sorry, that was three-fourths at that time, will have no option upon the subject. He said, by the fifth article of the plan, Article 5, the Congress will be obliged on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the states to call a convention for proposing amendments, which shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of the Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-quarters of the states or by conventions in three-fourths thereof. The words of this article are peremptory. The Congress shall call a convention. Nothing in this particular is left to the discretion of that body. Therefore, Hamilton concludes, we may safely rely on the disposition of the state legislatures to erect barriers against the encroachments of the national authority. End quote. What he saw today, what Mason saw, what he saw then, what Mason saw then, we are living in today. So, Tom, you just, I mean, you started um, there with Article 5. The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments. So let's talk about this convention, and I'm going to start yeah. with you, Tom. So what kind of convention is this going to be? Because a lot of folks say this convention is unlimited. There's no way yeah. to limit the agenda. Yeah. You know, this could just uh, throw out the Constitution throw out the Bill of Rights and start over. So, I mean, what, what, what yeah. is that? Yeah, well, you know, as Rita mentioned, there are, uh, from, the, from the time of the colonies up through the founding, there were about 31 interstate conventions. And the protocols were all understood, and as we'll get to talk about a little later, there are court decisions confirming this. This is not so murky uh, uh, as, as, as people tend to think. Um, in the 100 years prior to the ratification of the Constitution, at least 30 multi-government conventions took place. That's an average of one every four years. They did this. They knew what they were doing, right? And there were settled rules for this. Um, by 1787, when the Philadelphia Convention met, uh, the, the protocols for interstate conventions had been settled. They'd been standardized and were generally accepted and understood. Um, the procedure was to begin when Congress, a prior convention, or most commonly a state, drafted a document referred to as a call or an application. And this, as I say, went on uh, uh, more than 30 times uh, uh, up through, up uh, in the period up to the founding. And, now, as is the case under Article 5, the legislature of each state invited the convention uh, that was invited to, to the convention to determine whether or not to participate. And if they determined that they were going to participate, the legislature determined how the delegates were to be chosen. Again, this happened over, thir over 30 times. Usually the legislature elected them, uh, themselves. Uh, and and uh, the legislature or someone that the legislature designated also instructed them. And uh, moreover, every convention operated under the rule, one state, one vote, which reflected their, their uh, uh, semi-sovereign uh, uh, status. And then finally, uh, uh, the authority of the, for these conventions of states was always limited to the scope of the call. We know this, we've seen this, it happened many times, 
and everyone that was there in Philadelphia in 1787 in ratifying this second method of, of proposing amendments, they knew what they were asking for. Rita? Yeah, so I would say the short answer to the question, what kind of convention will we have, is that it depends on the topic stated in the 34 state legislature passed resolutions, mm, because okay. those resolutions essentially set the agenda. They set out what will be discussed by the committees sent by the states to the Article 5 Convention. So, for instance, the Convention of States project application, which has already been passed in seven states, working on number eight this week, um, limits the agenda of the Article 5 Convention called pursuant to our resolution to three subject matters. Fiscal restraints on the federal government, limiting the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and setting term limits for members of Congress and other federal officials. Now, what everyone needs to understand is that that basically sets the outer limits of what can be discussed and proposed at the convention. That doesn't mean the convention will actually propose an amendment or more on each of those topics, but that sets the germaneness rule for what can be considered. Another thing I want to just point out from my personal experience, because as the national legislative strategist for COS, I watch and listen to a lot of committee hearings on this. They tend to be rather lengthy, as some in the audience can attest, and also get to watch and listen to a lot of floor debates. What I find so interesting is that in the typical floor debate or committee hearing, you'll have you know, a, an opponent who is maybe really, really conservative, but they you know, are the ones who say, oh, we don't know what will happen at the convention. We need to be afraid. Um, and they'll stand up and they'll say things like that. And you know, then they'll say, you know, it could be an open convention where they could toss out the whole Bill of Rights or they're just going to start over and rewrite the Constitution. Then a few minutes later, you'll see a very, very liberal legislator get up and basically make the same argument. So what I think is so interesting about that and so instructive for us is that nobody seems to want an open, unlimited convention you know, that has no defined topic. Nobody. The liberals seem to be afraid of it. The really conservative legislators are afraid of it. And it's going to be the legislators, these people who are afraid of having an open, unlimited convention, they're the decision makers. They're the ones setting and defining the topic. They're the ones selecting and instructing the delegates. And so it you know, gets to seem rather silly that we're all so afraid. Everybody's afraid of this thing, but yet somehow some people still think it's going to happen. I, I think you echoed the sentiments of literally everyone in the State Policy Network uh, <laughs> who have been to numerous very lengthy legislative hearings. Um, I'm, I'm quite sure of that. So, okay, so let's say that we get the call. So y'all are at seven states, maybe going to eight states. That's right. Hopefully. 
All right, so what happens next? Um, let's start with you. I mean, like, kind of describe the next step. You know, then Congress got to mm -hmm. do something. What, what, what goes That's on? That's right. So under Article 5 itself, Congress has what we call a mandatory and ministerial duty okay. to actually issue the call, which is really just the formal invitation to all the states to, to participate in this convention that 34 states would have applied for. So the important points on this is that the duty of Congress in this regard is mandatory and it's ministerial, meaning there's, there's not discretion. Congress doesn't get to decide if it thinks it's a good idea to have this meeting. So, so Congress really shall call. So, uh, so some people say, oh, well, they can just ignore it. They can't just ignore no, it. No, they cannot. Okay. They cannot. It, it is a very clear mandatory okay. and ministerial duty under Article 5. Okay. Tom? Yeah, the, you know, this, there is the issue here of, of uh, aggregability that uh, I'm going to be at our next panel uh, where we'll have Mike Ferris and Trent England. I'll be asking both of them uh, uh, how they approach this. I know that, uh, you know, from Nadelson's research, and, and I think we've already made it clear that this second method of proposing amendments is intended to bypass Congress, but that's not to say that Congress won't play an important role. Uh, and uh, specifically in, in deciding which applications are void or valid and, and uh, to what extent uh, they can be aggregated. Um, and, and this aggregation issue uh, becomes more complicated. You know, in defending a convention of states, we're not saying there aren't questions and, and complications. That's why we're all meeting here to try to decide how to, how to address this. Uh, there's a good number of state applications that previously made that uh, uh, purport to limit the convention to considering only a particular amendment with precise wording. And uh, there's debate about that, and I'll be interested to hear how Mike and, and Trent uh, talk about that debate, how it, uh, how it uh, affects aggregability. Um, now, uh, you look at the balanced budget uh, uh, movement that's been around since the, uh, really since the 70s, and, and they've got 28 or 29 states, according to the balanced budget uh, tax, task, uh, task force. Now, should this be the first amendment that's the subject of a convention of states, we're gonna to have to be ready for uh, uh, some debate over that about Congress's, uh, the extent of Congress's discretion because they're going to have to decide whether, I think the, uh, three of the state applications do try to limit the convention to precise language. So there will be a fight over that. I think, I think that uh, um, our side uh, has the better arguments, but I expect that the aggregability issue uh, will be uh, an area of contention. So, 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 Tom, just to make sure then, it'd probably be in the best interest of those that want an Article 5 convention, we want to make sure that it's as uniform as possible. No, that's right, and as we heard, uh, as we heard last night, I think okay. that's crucial. I mean, so, you know, there are some who argue that uh, um, specific amendments mm -hmm. limiting it is unconstitutional. But I don't think that that's the case, and I think we'll get a chance to talk about that later. Yeah, so, okay. So uh, one of the things I've heard is that um, Congress can control the delegate selection process. You know, I was in New Hampshire, and I won't say who, because this is obviously a, a, a nonpartisan event, but some of the individuals uh, in the legislature particularly were concerned about the 
very liberal senator that they have uh, being chosen uh, you know, as a delegate, and they're, they're going to just force it on us, and Congress is going to force this process. So, I mean, Tom, how does Congress control that process, or yeah. do they? Yeah. Well, I mean, questions like that and others uh, arise out of the fact that this specific text of Article 5 doesn't delineate uh, the composition of an amendments convention. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as I've already said, and as others have said before me and better, uh, that's because they already knew. They didn't need to repeat what everyone knew. Uh, at the same time, James Madison did react to this, uh, 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 to this lack, and, and uh, that's in part fueled the fears that the whole process is a mystery. Uh, but there is no, I mean, there is no doubt that the delegates decided that an amendments convention, as called for under Article 5, was to be a convention of states. I mean, that's very clear from the record. Um, that was the only model known to the founders. And I mean, and you, on this you've got agreement among Alexander Hamilton, Tench Cox, George Washington, James, James Madison, among others. Uh, in fact, the first application made under the new Article 5, which was submitted by Virginia, named the gathering of the states that it called for a, quote, Convention of States, unquote. Mm -hmm. And then finally, uh, uh, during the uh, founding era, New York, Pennsylvania, and, and Rhode Island submitted uh, a number of resolutions that all named an amendments convention a convention of states. And, and this, this view was confirmed in 1831 in the case of Smith uh, versus, uh, versus the Union Bank of Georgetown it identifies an amendments convention as a convention of states. So uh, there really was no need for the framers at this point to go into any more detail to explain what really everyone knew. So it sounds like kind of the states are in control. I mean, Rita, how do you, could you explain yeah, a little bit more? I, that's exactly right. It's, it's perfectly clear from historical precedent that the state legislatures are the ones who choose and instruct and commission their delegates or commissioners. If you think about it just logically, it would be silly to think that a state is going to go and, and participate in this diplomatic meeting uh, this convention, but that it's going to have its representatives chosen by some other body, like Congress. Mm -hmm. Of course not. Yeah. And, you know, look back at history. Virginia was actually the first, my Virginia, to call for the Constitutional Convention in, in Philadelphia. Of course it did not purport to select who is going to represent all of the other uh, states at the convention. That just wouldn't make any sense. So the state legislatures are absolutely in control of selecting and instructing their delegates. And in fact, some states have already begun, like Indiana has passed a really extensive um, piece of legislation dealing with the selection of commissioners how they're going to be instructed. It's set up an advisory body to make sure that even if the legislature is not in session at some point during the convention, there is a system and a protocol in place for controlling its delegates. So it is certainly something that is left to the authority of the state legislatures. 
But what if it didn't matter? So one of the concerns that comes up a lot is what if California rammed through the door and said, we're the biggest state, we're going to have the most elements, <coughs> as they want to do in everything. And of course, you know, <laughs> for, you know, I'm being a little bit biased being from Texas, but I mean, we would hope that that wouldn't be the system. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it proportional representation? Is Congress going to be able to push that on the convention process? Or? No, it's not. And the very significance of the fact, like Tom was describing, that we know it is a convention of states, both by historical precedent and also by Supreme Court precedent, is that the voting is by states. It is not a convention of delegates where the number of delegates affects how much say the state has in the process. It is a convention of states and voting is done by states. It has always and only been done that way. What if they just whine really loudly though in California? <laughs> is I, that going to have any impact I, I, on the number Texas of Texas can take care okay. of California. Right. Tom, I'm not worried about that. that. Yeah, well, I, in addition to the uh, historical and court precedents to which uh, Rita just pointed and which I regard as, as dispositive uh, on this issue, there's also the practical uh, uh, matter. Do we really think that the less populous states would agree to proportional representation? The less populous states, whether red or blue, would agree to this? I think we know that they wouldn't. So we have both history and court precedent, and also just simply the self-interest of the smaller states. Mm -hmm. All right, well, um, so there's a bigger question too with the rules though, right? So I'm wondering about, you know, Congress's authority and then just really the general authority of the states with regards to the rules. Because there is a concern about, okay, well, Let's say it's one state, one vote, and you guys are right about that. And, but then the rules, surely they can goose the rules. So, you know, Tom, I mean, what, what, about, what about that deal? I mean, can you not control the rules to some extent? Or, I mean, are we going to lose control of that in the process at all? I don't think that there's any reasonable basis to think that that would happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we sort of had a dry run for this. Um, uh, in, in 1861, the Washington conference convention in which as many as 21 states from the north met to, and this was with the support of both outgoing President Buchanan and incoming President Lincoln, met to call a convention of states to propose an amendment designed to uh, avoid what they believed was a coming civil war. Now, uh, it didn't work, right, because the war came. But the process really served as a dry run. And what you see is you had 20, I think believe 21 states, the majority of the free states there. Uh, they operated under all the protocols and procedures that, that, that Rita just outlined. They didn't break apart. There was an anarchy. Right? It gives us, uh, it gives us uh, a lot of instructive lessons, and I think it also gives us a basis uh, for some confidence in the process. So Rita, I heard that y'all were, were working on some rules. Mm -hmm. how, how does that work? That's right. We actually, the Convention of States project has a Convention of States caucus hmm. made up of state legislators from 40 different states. We have over 200 legislators who are currently involved in that, including many from Texas. 
um, and are welcoming new members all the time. And the Convention of States Caucus actually has a set of draft rules. Do we have those here today? I think we were going to have if not, we will make them. We can definitely get okay, copies for anybody yeah. that wants them. And they are on our website as well, uh, conventionofstates.com. Um, but it is a complete set of draft rules mm -hmm. for the convention. Um, and they were written by Mike Ferris, who is here, and you'll hear from him later, and Professor Rob Nadelson, whose work we, of course, rely on heavily. He has probably done more research into the background of interstate conventions in American history than, than anyone in the world. Um, so we have this set of draft rules. I know the Assembly of State legislatures has also been working on a draft. I don't think theirs is complete yet. But the point is that on day one of the Article 5 convention, it's not just going to be confusion and everybody's going to say, oh, what are we going to do now? Well, you know, we don't know. We've never done this before. We don't know how the process is supposed to work. We have draft rules in place. And the other thing to keep in mind is it's most likely since state legislatures are the ones selecting the delegates, that a good percentage of the commissioners or delegates at the convention will be people who are very well versed in parliamentary procedure and the ordinary workings of state legislatures and diplomatic meetings anyway. Um, so the convention does adopt its own rules, as Tom pointed out. That's the way it has always been done. That's the only way it's been done. And there's absolutely no basis for thinking it would be done in any other way. And then there is a good groundwork for what those rules will likely look like. Okay, so Congress has to call the convention, one state, one vote, and the convention adopts its own rules. So Congress doesn't control the entire process. That's an yep. important thing to underline considering how well, I'd go. I'd go further than that. It's not just that Congress doesn't control the entire process. I mean, Congress has a, I would say instead, Congress has a very limited, right. explicit Very role. specific. Because Shall call the convention. Exactly. Okay. So let's talk about the amendments. Rita, what kind of amendments are you all thinking for this? Well, again, under the Convention of States project application, the subject matter of amendments would be imposing fiscal restraints, limiting the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and setting term limits. So what I would really like to see, and again, remember I'm the idealistic um, girl who went to law school, but I'd really like to see um, the interstate commerce clause be fixed and limited that so that good. Congress no longer has power over you know, what happens on a farmer's individual property. Um, I'd like to see the general welfare clause be fixed so that no, Congress doesn't have power to tax and spend for anything it happens to think is a good idea, even though it doesn't actually have any enumerated power over that topic. That's those are some of the things that I would like to see. How about well, you, maybe Tom? Virginia will have the wisdom to pick you to send to the convention. Oh. <laughs> Tom, what do you think about amendments? Well, I like the ones that, that Rita uh, suggested. You know, when you look at people that try to prognosticate on these things, and in this election year, who knows what's going to happen 10 minutes from now. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you do have, as I mentioned earlier, 
28 or 29 states that have approved some version of a balanced budget amendment. Uh, so let's, you know, we could, we could speculate that perhaps that will be the one, and that would be a, a no small accomplishment. Uh, in 1979, at an AEI conference, uh, 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 then law professor Antonin Scalia, uh, uh, he said he was less concerned, obviously he didn't want a silly amendment, but he said he was less concerned about the content uh, in particular of the first amendment to be proposed at a convention of states than he was with a convention of states taking place mm -hmm. because he said this and only this will wake up the Congress and the executive branch and the Supreme Court. Uh, if, if I can just direct your attention to our big beautiful screen up here, this is actually the Convention of States website. Remind me the address, Rita. It's conventionofstates.com. Dot com, okay. And then under about, uh -huh. I guess, you'll have the rules. The blue tab up there, so media about news. Jamie has helpfully yes. put up on Thank the screen. Thank you, Jamie. But it, I think y'all have a good mobile website too, mm -hmm. right? So you can pull this up and read through these if you are interested. And mm -hmm. I would encourage you to do it. They have a lot of good resources there. Um, so, okay, we've got the convention. We have uh, these uh, proposals, you know, commerce clause. I mean, you're telling me that I can't grow wheat on my own property and then <laughs> affect the rest of <laughs> commerce in other states? It's crazy. That was wheat, uh, you said, right? What? <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> wheat. So I think there's a law in that other thing. Right, yeah, right, right. Wheat, wheat with a T. Uh, so, but, so what amendments, you know, that, that garner the, the support, you know, th those amendments are then going to obviously go out and, and for ratification, but describe how that process works. So you have the convention, some of these amendments get the support of the delegates, they pass, or, or then what, what happens next? Well, it's, it's, fortunately, it's very straightforward. I mean, uh, and when you look historically, in all but one case, with all of the amendments that have been proposed, um, in all but one case, uh, Congress, and this is Congress's legitimate power, it has, uh, uh, it has uh, uh, mandated that for the amendment to be approved, it has to be approved by three-quarters of the state legislatures. Mm -hmm. uh, in one case, it did it by method of uh, state ratifying conventions, and that was in the case of the... Uh, um, uh, amendment overturning overturning uh, prohibition. So 1933, the 21st Amendment over, uh, overturned the 18th Amendment. Um, and that's it. Mm -hmm. So just to be clear, it always, any proposed amendment has to be ratified by three-fourths of the states or 38 states. Congress doesn't have any right. discretion in that. That's always the case. But Congress does get to choose between the two methods of ratification. I think it's important to note too that the president, whoever he or she may be next, has no role in the process and right now I'm extremely grateful uh, for that fact. Um, the other thing that some people want to know about is what if there are multiple proposed amendments? Do they get submitted as a package? And no, they don't. They are um, voted on for ratification in seriatim, so each one individually, just like the Bill of Rights. So the done. so the convention proposes five amendments. Five amendments each go out, and the states can decide mm -hmm. which ones they want to 
support or not. So, I mean, that has been discussed. People say, well, they're not going to support all the things at the convention. Well, they don't have to support That's all right. the things. Some of the states might support. Okay. That's so, so finally, you know, I think the last question that is the consistent question that everybody says is, mm -hmm. well, this is going to be a runaway convention. Mm -hmm. You guys are going to have this convention and then it's just going to get out of control and we're going to lose the Constitution and lose our liberty. Mm -hmm. So, Rita, starting with you, you know, is there truth to that or? I hope one of the things we've been able to do during our time today is just highlight a few of the multiple mm. and redundant layers of protection on this process. You know, first you have the state legislatures passing the applications that set the agenda, that limit the topic of what can even be discussed and considered at the convention. Then you have the state legislature subsequently to that instructing their delegates. And by the way, the state legislatures can issue more restrictive instructions to their delegates. So, for instance, in Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia can tell its delegates, we don't want you to support term limits, even though that's within the scope of the convention. We don't support that. We don't want you to support that. So there's another layer of protection. Then, at the convention itself, it takes a majority of the states there to actually get something proposed. So, you know, if you don't have 26 states, it's not going to happen. So think about how much protection is there just in that. Do we really think a majority of the states are going to support proposing something that's absolutely crazy? Then, even if they did, after that, it takes 38 states to ratify any proposal in order for it to become part of the Constitution. That is a really high hurdle to get over, even for a good amendment. So there's so much protection on the process that I, I think it's you know, outside the bounds of rationality almost to, to really think there's a possibility of a runaway convention. And some states have already kind of instructed some of their delegates, right? I mean, that's yeah, already some states happening. have not only, like Indiana, not only outlined how the process of delegate selection will work and how uh, the state will maintain authority and issue further instructions to them, but Indiana has made it a class five felony for any wow, of its delegates. Five. Sounds really bad. <laughs> to go beyond the scope okay. of their authority, yes. Tom? Yeah, I mean, that is the bottom line argument rebutting the uh, runaway convention fear, and that is that it, I mean, let's assume that no one follows the history and the protocols and the court cases. Assume that for the moment. Even if that were the case and what you came out with was uh, a proposal to eliminate the Second Amendment. Right? Does any, right? It only takes 13 states to veto anything, even something that came out of a imagined runaway convention. Does anyone believe that there aren't 13 states left in the Union that remain faithful to the principles of our republic? I mean, because if we doubt that, then we would have to concede that our experiment in self-government has already failed. In order to ensure that we haven't failed, we've been, we're proposing this movement because we see it as the only way 
to fix a broken Washington. And you know, uh, about a month ago, the Oklahoma Attorney General Pruitt issued a statement on the procedures and protocols. And, and if you go take a look at that, you'll see he says the same thing, that if we, if, as long as we employ the historical structure and the protocol and the practices that have characterized these prior interstate conventions, we have no fear of, of a runaway convention. And then, you know, last night you heard um, Governor Abbott's talk in which uh, he, he said there are really two major arguments. The first argument is that this is impossible. You can't get it done, as Peter Robinson said, right? It's too much of a long shot. And then the second argument, as we've heard, even if you get it done, how do you prevent a runaway convention? Well, you know, the first argument is a very strong argument, right? Because the Convention of States has never happened. So some people argue, um, why waste resources on something that's impossible? Well, I think the response is, no, it's never happened, but the country's never been in as bad a shape as it is right now. No. I mean, uh, sure. uh, Gallup has been doing this tracking poll for, for years, and it's up, now we've got 69% of Americans, when asked, when, when given three choices, big business, big labor, big government, 69% say they fear big government most. Right. So, uh, no, it's never happened before, but things haven't Pretty been bad. Mm -hmm. as desperate. So that's the response to the long shot argument. But even at a deeper level, and as I said, I think the argument that it takes 38 states to approve anything, mm -hmm. that's dispositive. Mm -hmm. But there's also a, 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 a sociological uh, a component to this. Precisely because they're right, that it's so hard to get 34 states, meaning their long shot argument, their first argument, I think they're wrong that even if you do then get it, it'll lead to a runaway convention. Imagine what this country would look like if 34 states, for the first time in our history, agreed on an amendment or amendments to rein in the federal government. Think of all the coalitions that would have to be built within states, between states, among states. We would be a different country as a result of this. Now, does anyone think that given that if this historic thing were to happen, that these 34 states having done this will then just say, well, let's just let people behind closed doors in Congress work out the rest. We're not going to pay attention, right? It wouldn't happen because, I mean, the federal government would be in an uproar if this happened. And they would fear a national uproar mm -hmm. if they didn't uh, advance what was proposed. And that's not just speculation. There's mm -hmm. historical basis for this. First 10 amendments to the Constitution, initially proposed by states, Congress, always jealous of its prerogatives, said, well, we're going to do this. Right? Same, thing, same thing with the uh, 17th Amendment, as we heard last night. One state away. But again, Congress said, we can't let the states do this. We'll, well, who cares? In other words, a convention of states movement can, can fail and still win, right? Mm -hmm. Let me, can I just add yeah, one, one thing to that? Because I started this morning by talking about, you know, we know from history mm -hmm. how the process works. History is our guide. But what I neglected to say and what I think is really relevant when we're talking about protections on the process is that I know that we all distrust the courts and for good reason, mm -hmm. but on this, 
on Article 5 questions, and yes, there are many precedents dealing with Article 5 questions throughout American history, the courts have consistently relied upon history in interpreting the words of, for purposes of Article 5, what a legislature is for purposes of Article 5. So not only do we have historical precedent consistently telling us, you know, universally, this is how it works. But we even have the court saying, when it comes to Article 5, history is our guide and will be our guide in interpreting the language. So okay. yet another protection from, you know, a source that we don't always trust. But right. in this context, they're good. Okay. So I guess, of, I guess the bottom line, Jess, is I have less fear of a runaway convention than I do of our runaway federal government. Well, amen to that. So um, we are living on borrowed time, like 19 point something trillion dollars of borrowed time. Um, so how much, uh, 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 how much, how many questions, I don't know, are out there? I mean, we, we have a little bit of time. I'm sure there's a few questions that might, might still be out here uh, that are unanswered by this discussion. Of course, we do have some other panels, but who has some questions? for our esteemed panelists here. Yes, sir. One question. Uh, and we do have the microphone, by the yes. way. I'm sorry. Oh. One question. With an activist Supreme Court, since it is now settled law, whatever that means, under Madison v. Marbury, that they get to decide what the Constitution says, won't they also get to decide the results of what the convention puts forward and therefore have the ability to render whatever is done a nullity. Great question. So Marbury v. Madison, the courts says what the Constitution says. Why won't they just say whatever the convention uh, says is, is, you know, whatever they want it to say? The only way the courts would become involved is if one of the other named assemblies in Article 5 didn't do its job. If the process broke down in some way, then the courts may become involved. But I'll go back to what I just said a minute ago, which is that on, this, on, on Article 5 questions, the courts have consistently drawn upon what we know from history as far as how the procedure has to work. And so on, on this issue, and I think generally when we look at process questions, I think just generally the courts do better with process questions than with yeah. interpreting vague or broad language and, and telling us what the substantive meaning is, which they wouldn't be, I, I can't imagine a scenario in which they would be called to do that here. But again, the courts have consistently relied upon history in interpreting Article 5. Tom, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think that's a great point, and just, you know, also including the political dimension. You heard last night, you know, in 1936, Roosevelt was reelected by a landslide. Mm -hmm. Then he announces his court packing scheme. He wants to increase the size of the Supreme Court from 9 to 15, which is perfectly constitutional if Congress had cooperated with it. The court hasn't always been. Uh, nine members. But of course it was obvious what he was going to do. Uh, he was going to uh, pack the court to get the New Deal legislation through. Uh, he, he had large Democratic majorities in both houses, but they wouldn't go with him on this. Uh, at, but nevertheless, 
the court heard the message. Mm -hmm. And then we, as, as Governor Abbott said last night, you had the switch in time that saved nine. And they started passing the New Deal legislation. They started affirming it. Um, again, I just, uh, I have no confidence in the motives of at least four of the current Supreme Court justices. But uh, even they, were they to see this historic event take place, I think that they would uh, be pulled back in as a result. So what you're saying is political pressure plus precedent mm -hmm. really could, could kind of, to some extent, solve that question if it were even a, a problem. But the uh, court but would see it, yeah. Probably. Okay. And oh, wow. We have a little bit of time for Q&A. Okay, I didn't so think we had that much time. Sorry. Now I'm wondering if my answer was responsive to your question. Were you asking, sir, if the what would happen if the Supreme Court got involved in, because of the process, something going wrong with the process, or was your question more, you know, what if the Supreme Court is then called upon to tell us what the new amendments mean? Was I believe it's a certainty that there will be litigation that will follow. I know for a fact that if it went against Texas, right here at TPBF, we have a, a group that would be ready to take the court, take to the court to resolve a potential dispute that went the wrong way. I'm sure that the same thing would happen in blue states. Consequently, it will get, it will be a justiciable issue it will get in front of the court and what makes us think that the court being what the court is and what it has become mm -hmm. won't in effect render whatever is done assuming everything is by the book in accordance with history and they find they just look for an excuse to go a different way what makes us think that there will actually be success at the end of the tunnel? Mm -hmm. So you were talking about a pro more of a process question, if litigation ensued over the process. Okay, I, I think we answered that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. You can expect lawsuits and the threats of lawsuits and everything else. The kitchen sink will be thrown at this as, as we build uh, uh, the numbers of, uh, of states applying uh, for an Article 5 Convention of States. But as they say, uh, when you're taking flack, that means you're over the target. So it, it's worth it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, what other questions do we have? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. Um, I guess I'm of, of the mind that the status quo isn't working and we ought to do something. But at the same time, I'm a little skeptical of the states, including the state that I'm in, Idaho, which is 80% legislatures, a Republican, all Republican congressional delegation, all Republican executive branch. Um, and even every state that espouses conservative principles and legislators that will carry copies of the Constitution in their pocket will gladly accept all kinds of federal money, including Medicaid. And there are states that are very Republican that are looking to expand Medicaid, talking to you, Oklahoma. Um, and so... <laughs> and Idaho, by the way. And, and so my question is, I really don't have a lot of confidence that states will actually um, propose amendments that we would find to be 
conducive to the original intent and if you, we were to revise the general welfare clause would it then be revised to include a, a permanent f map for medicaid for example i mean those are the things that really yeah. concern me how do we really know that these states that really right now have their power to be able to limit the size and scope of the federal government and aren't doing it will actually do it in the event of a convention of some kind so there's a, maybe a couple of questions there, right? Like how can we even trust that state legislators you're saying in these states that aren't doing everything right in their states, you know? Uh, how can we trust that they're actually going to, to propose good stuff and then uh, um, they're not using their power now? So, you know, uh, mm -hmm. what, what do you guys say to that? I would say I, I think it is likely that the proposals that we would see won't go as far as I would like them to go. I, I have mm -hmm. come to grips with that and, and accepted it. I don't think the proposals will be anything really bad or alarming mm -hmm. because of all the protections that, that we've already talked about. But, you know, I, I do have hope. I am hopeful because I am privileged every day to work with the heroes in the state legislatures across the country. The ones who are courageous and are willing to take a stand even if they have to suffer political consequences for taking it. And there are those people left in the state legislatures in almost, there are some states I haven't worked with yet, but they're there. And I think what's really important is for them to come together and to just take this bold stand and to know that there is a grassroots army there ready to stand with them. And that is really the central purpose of Citizens for Self-Governance, um, is to build that grassroots army that will stand with those courageous statesmen and, and there, there are some there. So I, I am hopeful and I see them more and more standing up. Tom? Yeah, yeah, I would just add to that um, another benefit, uh, hard to quantify but absolutely indispensable because it's the foundation of self-government. And that is the civic educational effect on the American people of this movement. Mm -hmm. I mean, what does that mean? It means exactly what we're doing this morning. Right, talking about this now, it means what the Convention of States Project folks are doing every day with their activists all over the country. I was, uh, I'll confess, uh, for 20 years I was a university professor, uh, and then and, and we then forgive a, you, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> and then a university administrator, and I can tell you from the schools that I taught and administered at that the national polling is correct. For the last 50 years, universities have abdicated their responsibility for civic education. Today, according to recent polls, 10% of recent college graduates think, they think that Judge Judy sits on the Supreme Court. These are recent <laughs> college graduates, right? A third can't identify all three branches. A third uh, of, of the government. A third can't even identify one branch of the federal government. I do not blame the students. 50 years ago, universities just dismantled required study of the political, moral, and intellectual foundations of the American experiment in self-government. That was a conscious project. 
so that today college students either get no education in American democracy or they get bad education in American democracy. If they hear anything about the Constitution at all, it's that it was written by a bunch of rich white slave owners. Mm -hmm. Time magazine could run a cover in 2009 that said, is the Constitution matter anymore? I didn't think I would live long enough to see, right? That's the same thing as asking, does the rule of law matter anymore? Does the distinction between civilization and barbarism matter anymore? Right? That's the point we're at. But the good news is that through this movement, as Americans come once again to learn that their rights are, exist fully for them, not from government, contrary to a recent politician who said our rights come from government. Right? If our students were again educated in the foundations of our way of life and the mm -hmm. principles that inform the construction of the Constitution, they would know that our rights come from, as the Declaration says, from nature and nature's God. They are complete within us. Mm -hmm. We delegate some of our rights to government only so far as and only for so long as that government promotes the liberty-promoting purposes for which it was established. Americans don't know that now. When they learn that again, they will reacquire what Jefferson said was essential to the maintenance of Republican liberty, and that is jealousy, right? Popular jealousy of the power that the citizens themselves have, that the states have, and therefore they will look askance at offers of, we're here to help from the federal government. I bet Patrick Henry College students know a little bit more. <laughs> I can guarantee you Texas Aggies do. Uh, just to put a selfish plug in there. What other questions do we have? Yes, sir. Well, I have one large question, which is give us your thoughts on kind of the, the timeline or calendar for this. Because when I think about all the things that have to be accomplished, there's, there's really a lot of stuff. And sort of I have a couple of sub-questions about that. First, how realistic is it to think that there's going to be litigation or think, think there's not going to be litigation? Because I'm not sure that I see the issue of uh, how the states are represented as settled. And uh, I mean, I, I like the idea that we could settle it through rule four up on the screen. And I'm very sympathetic to article five reforms, but uh, uh, you know, article six of the constitution suggests that if federal judges decide that they wanna have something to say about that, then they're gonna decide that it's, it's justiciable, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I worry that it's, it's too quick to say that uh, uh, there's not gonna be any litigation about this. Um, Last year, this is a different topic, last year I went and looked in, uh, in my state's legislation about uh, you know, how we select delegates. And Arkansas, my state, has nothing in there right, about how we select delegates, and I suspect there are a lot of states that haven't accomplished that. This is another realistic delay. And so when I kind of try to do this in my head, and I think of all the hurdles we have to go over, uh, there's a couple of years to pass resolutions in a lot of states, and uh, a couple months at least for Congress to make a call. Mm -hmm. Presumably, I think it's reasonable to predict that there's gonna be a couple of years of litigation. And uh, then you have the selection of delegates, which I hope might be simultaneous. Then you have ratification. Is it realistic to say that this could happen in say less than 10 years? So two questions really. You're asking, you know, lawyers love to sue. Sorry, Rita. So lawyers are going to sue and judges are going to play with the process, but then is, it, is the timeline realistic? I mean, he's saying 10 years, so what, what do you guys have to say about that? I think it could certainly happen within two or three years. I think, I think 10 years is too long. I think 
the question of whether there would be litigation before the convention even starts um, may depend on which application gets to 34 first, or arguably gets to 34 first. I think if the BBA application arguably gets to state 34 first, there may well be litigation over the aggregation question. Um, because I have looked at the different BBA applications uh, that have been passed, and there is a lot of variation in the wording. Some of them specify the exact language of an amendment to propose, and others are much more general. So I think there could be litigation over that. I think if Convention of States project gets to 34, if things go as they have been, we have been very um, adamant in insisting that the operative language setting forth the subject matter in our applications be consistent. Mm. So I think when we get to 34, I don't think there will be a, a question for litigation over that. So I don't see a long delay happening so after we get to 34. Maybe the consistency of the process getting to the 34 states mm -hmm. is going to really shorten the amount of time and the potential difficulties Absolutely. afterward. Yeah. Yeah. Tom? Yes. Well, and I know that the, that, uh, the Convention of States Project folks are in all the legislatures helping them to work with the process in order to avoid the sorts of problems that you mentioned. Uh, I, um, you know, as I say, I, I mean, the left sues for everything, so they're not being litigation. I don't think we can count on that, but again, we're not, that doesn't mean we don't do it because they're going to sue us. But there has to be a, you know, a non-frivolous question for the litigation to actually cause a delay. And so... And, and so this, forgive me for following up, so this, so this, uh, this thing we have on the bottom of the screen here, uh, where we have, uh, you know, rule four at the bottom. Is that, how, how precisely is that resolved and how, how precisely is that removed from the, from the domain of the courts when we, when we, uh, is, there, is there a way to have this decision made that uh, it's just going to be one step, one vote? Yeah, I'll let Mike, but it would be foolish for me to respond when Mike is in the audience behind you. <laughs> um, Go ahead. The, you have to have a right of legal question before you suit. Yeah. And you have to call the convention and you have to establish rule four to have a right suit. So what the court would have to do is try to enjoin an ongoing convention that's already in operation. Uh, the, the aggregation issue is the first opportunity, and I think Rita's answer is correct. There will be BBA litigation on aggregation. I don't think there will be for uh, convention of states. Um, on this, once, you know, you've got your convention in operation, and somebody tries to sue and stop an ongoing convention. I don't think that the courts will have the, the, the guts to do that because frankly, the courts understand that uh, their ultimate ability to uh, remain in, in power depends upon them playing the game to some extent. The, if you read Supreme Court decisions over time, they think that the whole Roosevelt court packing scheme was the worst constitutional crisis in the history of the Republic because it was going to diminish their power. Uh, and so they know good and well if they, they engage in this. And the ERA litigation that I did, the Supreme Court was at least as liberal as it is today, probably more liberal than it is today. They could have resuscitated the ERA. They didn't mm -hmm. uh, because the process questions were too clear 
and they, they vacated the decision, the ERA died, and so be it. And I, so I don't, I don't expect to lose the questions, and I especially don't expect a court to enjoin a, a convention that's in progress. Mm -hmm. They just don't have the guts, or, or, and they don't have the history. We win this case. The, the one state, one vote thing is so absolutely clear mm -hmm. that th there's just no, you know, they have to absolutely defy history to do it. And, and I think that the, the mood of the country at that point in time would be to call a convention to specifically re reverse the Supreme Court and mm -hmm. to vacate them. So the chances of this happening are about as low as, as uh, you, can, you can sue the Pope, uh, you know, you're just not going to win. And, and I, I don't think you're going to win this in, in the context that we're talking about. Yeah, you have to have Thanks a basis for a legal argument. And there is okay. no basis for any other voting rule, not, not in history, not in the law, there, not in logic. There's not a good basis for Let that. Let me argument. take this opportunity to advertise our upcoming panel a debate <laughs> featuring Mike Ferris and Trent England, which is going to be awesome. And I hope you guys are all there. Uh, what other questions do we have? Yes, sir, John. What about a... Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Over here first. I, I have a couple of procedural suggestions for allaying the concerns that have been raised in the prior questions. I've given some thought to this over the years. One would be to create an amendment to Article 3 to create a United States Supreme Court to come alongside the United States Supreme Court that we currently have that would be composed of nine justices selected randomly from the, the Supreme Courts of the various states, and it would have jurisdiction with questions about power allocation. And so there would be no ruling in one's own favor. I mean, you look at all the cases in our history where there was a dispute between the states and the feds, and this court composed of federal employees paid by the federal government, appointed by the federal government, always goes for the feds against the states. But what if there were no feds on this court of the United States that was composed of state judges, and they could then rule on these kinds of issues that people are worried about because it would be a question of power allocation and the power of the federal government. And the second issue is this notion of uh, how do we rein them in? Well, what if we had an amendment that it was proposed through this process that basically said the 16th Amendment is going away and the only way to raise revenue for the federal government is for the states to pass on revenue that they raise. And so think about all the strings that could be put by the states on the feds the way they've been putting strings on the states all these many years that we've had that income tax. Very interesting yeah. ideas. Mm -hmm. Hadn't thought of that one. Yeah, yeah. me either. So it calls to mind William F. Buckley's, you know, pick Congress out of the New York phone book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, oh, right. Oh, yes. Um, Josh, sorry about that. So, you talked a little bit about the, the idea of the runaway convention. What about a hung convention where, you know, people walk out, they refuse to, you know, continue to participate. Uh, this draft set of rules um, envisions the quorum being 26 states, the majority of states. But, you know, what if, I mean, so how, how would that play out? How do you envision the dynamics if, if the convention begins to go a direction that a number of states don't want and they begin to leave? Well, you know, what if there's still a quorum, but you know, you've got 10 states that have refused to participate? You know, talk a little bit about that, what, what might play out there. What if the convention falls apart? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, 
I like to think that the our good conservative states would not walk away if if they thought that you know if a quorum would be left that could actually end up proposing something bad but even if it did even if it fell apart it couldn't by falling apart actually do damage to the constitution which i think is the important thing because even if that happened even if 26 states stayed and proposed something really bad the 38 state ratification procedure is absolutely a protection that that can't be taken away yeah. tom yeah i mean that'd be a good problem to have because that would mean that for the first time in history 34 states have applied for a convention of mm -hmm. states uh, so i'd like to be there uh at, at this point but you can't, I don't think you can worry about those things at this point. I mean, 1787 convention in Philadelphia, Rhode Island didn't come, right? So, New York that's right. Mm -hmm. So, but, I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, if you get the political capital to get right. 34 states right. on board with this, they're probably going to want to have a convention. Representative Miller, does that sound about right? right. Okay. okay. Yeah, I see, and that's what I think is, is, mm -hmm. It's understandable that we don't appreciate it, but because it's never happened. But you know, if you try to imagine what a different country this would be after 34 state legislatures did this, starting a big conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other questions out here? Yes, sir. Oh. Yes, sir. I'm pointing at you. Sorry. Our friend from New Mexico. Hi. Um, wouldn't the uh, restore restoration of the Commerce Clause inherently in the federal drug war as you somewhat alluded to and uh, the legalization of not just marijuana but all drugs at the federal level hmm. what do you guys have to say about i don't that? feel qualified to answer that question <laughs> yeah <laughs> mike yeah, yeah let, mike. let mike answer it um the um the legalization of dr drugs basically within the states would be possibly affected by a change to the Commerce Clause. It would not change uh, bringing drugs in from Mexico or France right. or wherever. So the, the federal jurisdiction there, would be a, it would be a state question on most drug questions. If we went back to the original meaning of the Commerce Clause, draw the line at the national border, uh, but it would not give them the jurisdiction to regulate any criminal activity, any normal criminal activity through the Commerce Clause, whether that's drugs, whether that's, you know, the Guns in School Act, you know, the general criminal jurisdiction would be removed from the federal government that they've gotten through Commerce Clause. Thanks, Mike. And, and I mean, not to, I mean, that certainly is a good question, although I think right now we're primarily concerned about process, right? I mean, the, the kind of the point is, is, hey, there's a lot of different ideas here. Convention of States has a very clear set of ideas. You know, you've got the balanced budget amendment out there, and then we're looking at, you know, Governor Abbott's Texas plan, obviously, as well, leading the charge and some of these things. But uh, definitely, I mean, this is this is why we need you guys involved in this. We need the intellectual leadership to to help come up with these ideas. And and uh, uh, so, uh, what other questions do we have out here? Yes, sir. And uh, you mentioned an uh, organization, uh, I'm, and I'm going to um, misname it, but the Assembly of States Lawmakers. What is it? Mm -hmm. So, uh, what are they, and how are they connected to this? Uh, are they independent? Um, what's the genesis of that group? And then, what, what are some of the other groups that are working uh, in the Article Five 
space and just what are some of the connections between the different groups? And just a hat tip, Jameson, you're from Mississippi, right? Right, yeah, okay. I'm in Mississippi. Yeah, I can't give you the history of ASL, though Mark and, and Mike probably could if you want to talk to them more afterward, but they have, um, they're a group that has had state legislators coming from a number of different states, and it has been a bipartisan group to some extent. And I believe they have been holding meetings a couple of times a year for two, three years now. And their primary focus, um, per my understanding, has been to work on getting some of these procedural things like a set of draft rules nailed down in advance of, of the convention being called. I know they have a lot of connections with the BBA movement. Um, but we have had some of their members take a, take a firm stand for Convention of States and, and help us get passed as well, notably in the state of Indiana yes. um, this year. Senator David Long was, was a big help to us there. As far as other groups, um, ALEC for the, for the past couple of years has had speakers and panel discussions focused on Convention of States and has passed um, model policy language that basically consists of the Convention of States resolution. Uh, so they have been an ally as well. And then, of course, I already mentioned the Convention of States Caucus, which is associated directly with Convention of States Project. All right. Tom, do you have anything? Right? Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, there are a number of other organizations out there that have been working in different areas on this. You know, on the one hand, you could say, well, gosh, wouldn't it be great if we could all get together and Right, uh, and yes. On the other hand, I think it's, that's good news. In other words, uh, it's good news that you've got a multiplicity of groups out there who, while they may have different ideas on this or that, uh, all agree that the federal government is, is out of control and who all agree that the states are the, are the last best hope for restoring liberty. So I see it in the end as a good news story and, and, I, and I rest uh, confident in the expectation that as this movement grows, we'll see more coalescing. Great, well, and speaking of legislative leadership, we do have Representative Miller uh, who has been here and also Senator Bob Hall uh, uh, who wants to ask a question. Senator Hall, how are you doing? Thank you very much, and uh, this is really great. I appreciate the education that you're doing. There's a lot that needs to be done. And uh, my question though here is a little micro compared to some of the others. It has to do with one of the amendments, and that is the balanced budget amendment. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a balanced budget amendment here in Texas. To say it's kind of meaningless is, is really kind of pretty effective because the legislature gets to say what, what is balanced. And we've seen growths of uh, spending of 26% in one year. So one article referred to it as uh, Texafornia <laughs> in, in doing that. 9%, uh, 11%. Our problem isn't balancing the budget. Uh, it's spending. It's, yeah. it, it's spending. The federal government does it with deficit spending, which is taxes on future generations. Probably the, the cruelest form of taxation without representation you could ever dream of of what the burden we're putting on future. So, and the alternative is to raise taxes. So mm -hmm. a balanced budget amendment to me would mean just runaway taxes back mm -hmm. to the 90%, 99%. Uh, 
or whatever. We need to actually limit spending. Spending growth is, is what needs to be limited. And I don't quite see how we do it with a balanced budget amendment. We end up with a federal government like Texas, just, you know, whatever it's going to be. Is there any thought to how, how we do that or how we can tie the two together so that we actually limit or shrink government mm -hmm. growth? I would say I agree with everything you just said, which is why I really appreciate the genius of the Convention of States project approach, which is to, rather than just promoting a single type of amendment, the balanced budget amendment, let's say, it is rather to frame the topic. And the way the topic is framed in the Convention of States project application, you know, I mentioned the three um, subject matters, but the one that would be relevant to a balanced budget amendment is impose fiscal restraints. So that would encompass the spending limits that I agree we desperately need. And I wouldn't want to see a balanced budget amendment without a spending limitation. And so that is the approach we've taken. Um. Yeah, I, I, I take your point on this, although at the same time, I mean, if even in, the, in, in uh, the horror scenario where taxes get raised to 90% in order to balance the budget, well, there would be pushback against that by the voters. So, it, it, so even that would be a step in the direction of, of fiscal sanity, because now there would finally be a ceiling, there would only be one alternative, you couldn't hide these tax increases by transferring them to the next generation. Mm -hmm. Right, this generation would have to bear it. They would find taxes at such a rate unbearable. That could produce another uh, 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 revolution in itself. Mm -hmm. and, and Senator Hall, we're not asking organizations to necessarily you know, endorse specific solutions, although we are particularly partial to the governor's Texas plan, obviously. <laughs> uh, but you know, the Convention of States resolution as she mentioned mm -hmm. you know does does leave it somewhat open um, to putting a cage around the federal government and representative it's, Miller it's on the screen I'll just point out that is the text of our model application that's on the and screen. I'm seeing we have one minute left so representative Miller we're going to end with you well no, I'll just keep it real quick uh, I agree with the senator completely about spending the question is what is government supposed to spend money on what is the real role of government and I think we need to have a constitutional discussion about what that role is and then what that means for spending. That's where the issue is for me. And uh, we have a problem right here in Texas with are we spending money in the right places? Mm -hmm. Okay. That's Absolutely. Well, I, and, and just so I know y'all are wondering, but let me be very clear, very clear about this. Our representatives and senators in Texas are very conservative you are not allowed to borrow them and take them to your states. They are staying right here <laughs> in Texas. We are not going to allow you to take them uh, with you. Uh, so, And, and uh, Representative, you said we need to have a constitutional discussion. Mm -hmm. I think that could be the takeaway from yeah. this. Yeah. I mean, that was our whole purpose here at the summit, right? If we can get more and more people, beginning with us, going out into our states, engaging Americans in a constitutional discussion, that's that's the key. Any any closing sentence? We just have like a second if you that, want to say something. That was it. Okay. Well, thank you guys for being here. Appreciate it. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com/pod. Thank you for listening.